things that have happened. But as we open up God's Word to John chapter 15, last week, Pastor Matt, as I was just mentioning, was preaching on John chapter 15, verses 1 to 17, and showing us the great privilege to abide in Christ and to bear fruit for the Father's glory. We looked at Jesus' election and how it assures us of our efforts to serve him are not in vain. For underneath that are his everlasting arms. And this week, we're continuing in that same chapter and looking at the outcome of what it means to abide in Christ. What happens? Because as we will see in John chapter 15, starting in verse 18, is not all roses if you want to abide in Christ. In fact, Jesus has promises us quite the opposite. He actually says it's not going to be rosy, that we can expect other things. So what can you expect as one who is abiding in Christ? How should we respond? How can we withstand it? And Jesus takes the time to explain these things for us. So if you have your Bibles, I'll be reading from John chapter 15, starting at verse 18. So the word of the Lord says this. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse of their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Verse chapter 16, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogue. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. In verses 15, in, in verses 18 to 25, we see the haters. A bunch of haters. In verses 18 and 19, as we look at these verses, we see why does the world hate Jesus? I think that's a good question to ask. Especially in our culture, still to this day, people love the idea of Jesus. They love him. I remember growing up in high school, uh, the, the, the shirts and the, the caps, the baseball caps, Jesus is my homeboy. Right, that was a popular thing back in the day. I must admit, in my youthfulness, I even had one of those. But here Jesus actually says something else. The world hates me. 
But why does Jesus, why is Jesus hated so much in this world? Because simply this, he testifies that the world's deeds are evil. And nobody likes being told that they're wrong. I hate being told I'm wrong. That's why I'm always right. I'm being for Jesus. But John 7, 7 says this, The world cannot hate you, as Jesus says, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. The world hates Jesus. They like the idea of Jesus. They like the idea of the, you know, the blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus sitting on some green meadow hill somewhere, playing the guitar, singing, Kumbaya, my Lord. Well, that's not the Jesus that is presented in the Word of God. They hate Jesus because they expose the darkness. And he also pushes this further, and he says, to be a disciple of Jesus is to expect the same hatred that Jesus got. Which I think is hard for us in Canada. We're spoiled. We're incredibly spoiled. We complain all the time now for the last two years. I've been complaining for the last two years. Why do I have to wear my mask? Why... Why do I have to get my mask? That's all I've got. And some people even brand that as persecution. But that's not what persecution is according to the Bible. A mask doesn't stop me from worshiping my God. Inconvenient for sure. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. That's not the type of hatred that Jesus is talking about And Jesus gives two reasons as to why the disciples are going to be hated. Two reasons. They hated Jesus first. This is the first reason. They're going to hate you because you're a follower of me because they hated me first. That's what he says. His disciples aren't of this world. As disciples, they testify of the light. And the world's deeds are further exposed as the disciples of Jesus Christ go well proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel is simple. It says this. We have sinned against the holy God. And because of that sin, we deserve one thing, and that one thing is hell itself. But by the grace of God, he sits down from his throne. He takes upon himself humanity, and he's born of the baby. He grew up. He died on the cross for our sins so that anyone who confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord will be saved. And nobody likes that. We live in a world that thinks that you can pull up your own bootstraps and get out of bed, and you're good to go. The gospel says you can't. The gospel says that you're evil. And we live in a world where we think everyone is born innocent. The world doesn't like that. And the disciples, as they go out proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, will further expose the world's deeds. So two questions come up for me as I reflect just upon this first verse. Are you expecting persecution? Are you living a life that's different enough from this world that they can tell that you don't belong to this world. Can they tell? Can you tell? When you're from somewhere else, you are different. You know, I was making fun of someone the other day as they were at my house. I'm not going to say their name. And I said, yeah, they're making, they say it about wrong because they're American. I've traveled around a little bit. I've been to South America. I've been to the Middle East. I stand out. 
I'm 6'1", I'm a big guy, I'm a redhead, I stand out. And it's noticeable. I don't belong there. I am from somewhere else. I am different. I speak differently. I say different things. I talk differently. Everything about me is different. So the question is, are you living a life where the world around you knows that you're different? If in Christ your origins and where you belong or where you're abiding are different than those who aren't in Christ, can they tell? Or or are you just blending in like camouflage? Jesus in the previous verses calls his disciples to grow more in the intimacy and love and obedience and fruitfulness, to grow in Christ's likeness. And this is the outcome of abiding in Jesus. The more I abide in Jesus, the more I'm going to be like him, the more I'm going to look different. And the more I look different, the more the people in this world are not going to like me. Those who are doing that will have the same effect in the world as the master does. I love how D.A. Carson puts it. He says this, the world is a society of rebels and therefore finds it hard to tolerate those who are in joyful allegiance to the king to whom all loyalty is due. Ain't that true? The Bible is pretty clear. Ephesians 2 verse 3 says, among whom all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. If you are in Christ, you have been chosen out of a world. You've been called out of darkness and brought into a kingdom of light, into his marvelous light. You, your life should reflect a new life. You have been drawn by Jesus' love into a family that Jesus calls his own. This is a mind-blowing thing to me. I was a rebel. The only thing a rebel deserves is death. Back in the medieval times, if you rebelled against your king, there wasn't a negotiation. It was an automatic death sentence. But here Jesus Christ calls me and you who are rebels into his own family and calls us his own. And the outcome of this, for those who are abiding in Christ, you aren't going to be liked by those who are persisting in rebellion against the rightful king. We are aliens in this land. It makes us outcasts in this world of rebels. But how do I get the world to love me? You may ask. Well, it's pretty simple. I agree with everything the world is doing and you're good to go. Or not say anything about it either. We're living in a day and age where it's becoming more and more harder to not preach the full word of God and not get something for it. When verse 20, Jesus comes along and he says, he's addressing this idea, is Jesus your master? Is he your master? Is he your king who called you out of rebellion and brought you to himself? Who calls you his own? Is that you? Are you resting in the finished work of Jesus on the cross? Are you believing in the words of Jesus? Are you a former rebel who by God's amazing grace has saved you? Are you his? Is he yours? Are you abiding in him? 
then let me say this. If you are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and living in progressive conformity to his own life and teaching, you will attract the same antagonism that he did. It's not an option. You will attract it. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you, he says. In 17, in chapter 17, verse 6, which we'll get to in a little bit, in a couple of weeks, says that the Father gave Jesus his disciples. In verses 5, 16, and 19, we are reminded that his disciples have been rescued from the clutch of this world because you've been called out. Your origins are different. Your belonging is different. And if there's anything that's evident throughout history in our sinfulness, we don't like people who are different. We don't, by nature. There's this great article by a guy named Tim Challey. He's a good Canadian guy. He had five reasons to rejoice in persecution. And he lays out five of them right here. He says, we can rejoice because God is testing you. As he quotes 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fury trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. The second one is rejoice because you, you share in Christ's suffering. And Peter actually continues on in verse 13 of the same chapter. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The third one is rejoice because God is with you. The fourth one is rejoice because God is glorified. The fifth one is rejoice because justice is near. In your suffering, you really can rejoice as you are being persecuted. You can be glad. Why? Because God is testing you to prove and strengthen your faith, because you share in the sufferings of Christ, because God is near to you, because God is being glorified, and because justice is not far off. And as I reflect upon this, in Acts 5, Peter and the apostles get dragged before the Sanhedrin, similar to what Jesus is just talking about right here. They're dragged towards them, and they're beaten and told not to preach Christ. You know what their response is? They leave after they're getting beaten and dragged before that and excommunicated from the Sanhedrin and they rejoice. Why? Because they've realized that their life reflects Jesus so much that they were counted as a pleasure, as a blessing to be persecuted for Jesus' name. I want that for me. I don't want to be persecuted. No, no, no. <laughs> you need to go see some counseling if you're like, yay. But when it happens, not if, when it happens, will I embrace it with joy because I was counted as one of Christ's? Is my life different? Is my life different? If they kept my word, as he says to his disciples here in verse 20, they will keep yours. If they persecuted me, and many of them did, he says, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, and some of them did, they will obey yours also. As he continues on in verse 21, but they will do all these things to you on account of my name. 
Why are all of these things happening in verses 18 and to 20 going to happen to them? Because of Jesus. How the world responds to Jesus' disciples, whether it be good or bad, is because of who Jesus is, not because of his disciples. The people of the world do not know him who sent me. If the world really knew God, they would have recognized the revelation of God in Jesus. And Jesus has spoken and shown himself to who he is. And and he continues on, verses 22 to 24. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of their sin. Wait, what? If Jesus didn't come, there wouldn't be any guilt. If he hadn't said anything... They, weren't, they aren't guilty. What about all the people who don't hear the gospel? What does Jesus mean by this? And here's an important thing to remember. The Bible interprets the Bible. So Jesus can't mean that only those who see and hear him are made guilty because John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And Jesus is the only way to the Father, as John 14, 6 says. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So what is Jesus saying? When Jesus came and spoke to those who are listening, he incited the most central and controlling of all sins. They were already sinful people, and Jesus exposes it even more. And that sin is the rejection of God's gracious revelation, rebellion against God. They chose specifically darkness rather than light. And Jesus has convicted those who have heard and seen that he, what he has done. If they had not seen and heard Jesus, their own perversity would not have been apparent to them, but now it is. And by revealing how people would live, should live and by loving everyone truly, Jesus shows the corruption and filth of their hearts. And now their sin is undeniable. And they are left without excuse. And rather than falling on their knees and pleading for mercy and turning from sin, they hate Jesus even more for exposing it. Because hating Jesus is hating what is good and true and right and godly. To hate Jesus is to hate the Father. So what are you choosing today? Jesus has shown us specifically through his word how we are to live. What is your life right now showing you are choosing? So let me warn you, though, because it's in this text. I grew up in a time where you went to youth retreats, and you went to the youth retreat, and then everyone was told, essentially, that your life is going to be great once you come to Jesus. That was my church culture. It was a total lie. But let me warn you now, because I will warn you in the way that I wasn't. By choosing Jesus, you choose a life that is rejected by this world. But is there any greater treasure than Jesus? There's a cost that needs to be counted. Choosing Jesus will cost you, but you will receive the greatest treasure, and that is Jesus himself. In verse 24, Jesus comes along and he says this, If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of the sin. But now they have seen and hated me, both me and my Father. 
Look to his works. Look to all he has done. His works that no one else could do confirms who he is. Jesus is the man who stepped down from his throne. He was God, 100% God, 100% man. He, he made the blind see. He turned water into wine. Which means he has control over time because wine takes forever. He rose the dead. He fed 5,000 people with the ultimate potluck. All of these things he did, and all of these things point to who he is and where he's from. Jesus has done work showing his ability to do only what God can do. And if he can do only what God can do, guess what? Who he is. He's God. His works are done to convince people of his deity and of their need to be reconciled to him through repentance and faith. But those people were here would rather hate Jesus and the Father than turn from their sin and trust Jesus. And whether the people see it or not, Jesus' works are God's works. To reject Jesus' works and his words is to reject the clearest light, the fullest revelation, and that shows the most central and deep-staying guilt. Because don't forget what John chapter 20, verse 31 says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So who are you? There's no room here. Jesus doesn't allow it. What are you doing? You can't say you believe in God and reject Jesus. You can't say you receive Jesus and not obey. You can't say you're abiding in Jesus and not have a life that has changed. And to abide in Jesus is to invite persecution as Jesus did. As he continues on, verse 25, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. So in light of all of this persecution that Jesus is warning his disciples will come because he himself was persecuted, because he revealed the darkest, the sin of of the world's life, did he notice something in that verse, in verse 25? Who's in charge? Who's in charge of this persecution that Jesus is going to be receiving or has received without cause? It's a prophecy that is being fulfilled, which means God ordained it. God caused it. The important point is to realize that the world isn't in control of the persecution that Jesus and his people will have. The world is instead merely fulfilling what was foreordained and pre-recorded by God in the Bible. So the big point is this here, and the one that I struggle with to wrap my mind around, I'll be honest, but I trust God in this because he is good. The persecution of Jesus and his people came from God just as the world persecution of Jesus was ordained by God. It was their malice, listen to me, it was their malice that would nail Jesus to the cross. But it was God's grace at work that through his death, believers would be forgiven of our sins. Acts 2, 23 This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 
Are you a believer? Have you repented of your sin and trusted and trusting in Jesus? Then you have no reason to be fearful. Don't fear the judgment of a world that even in its wrath can work only for the praise and the glory of God and salvation of his people. Surely, as Psalm 76 says, surely the wrath of man shall praise you. And the remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. Brothers and sisters, let us fear God. We should concern ourselves with his judgment and seek his salvation through the costly faith in Jesus Christ. There's an expectation that comes here. To be a disciple of Jesus is to invite this. To invite the same thing that Jesus received. This passage gets right in our face of any form of Christianity that says God just wants you to succeed and be comfortable. And that if you're not getting that, it's because you're not praying hard enough or not good enough or not naming it enough or whatever it may be. One of the scariest verses when I think of those who have rejected Jesus is in Revelation, and one of the most encouraging verses for those who face persecution is in Revelation 6, 9, and 11. When he opened the fifth seal, it says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. It's like, oh man, that kind of, you know, I don't want to be a Christian. But you catch that in verse 11? A little longer. Our hope is found in the resurrection and it allows us to face this because we have the greatest treasure. God is in control. There are people who, prof who professing Christians have, there are people who are professing Christians who have fallen away when, they th when the threat of the world's hatred and persecution becomes too high of a cost for them. These people forget about the value of their immortal soul. Other professing Christians continue to believe in Jesus but live close to the world and fear to challenge its judgment. But Jesus reminds you and me that the true judgment doesn't belong to this world, but to God. During times of persecution, we need to help each other keep our eyes on the greatest treasure that makes any cost worth it. For those who are in Christ, we can face this with the help of a helper. As verses 26 to 16, 4 says, the helper is given. In John 13, Jesus told his disciples that he was going away and that the world is going to hate them because they will convict the world of its sin in the same way that Jesus had done. So the question here is, how does Jesus equip the disciples for this daunting task? Hey, come to Jesus. 
but you need to expect persecution. I'm not saying it's going to happen necessarily. I don't, we don't desire it, but we need to be ready for it. Jesus says he will send them the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit is given a mission of helping the disciples accomplish the goal of making disciples through bearing witness of who Jesus is. But again, to bear witness of who Jesus is, who the world hates, disciples will be hated too. So back in chapter 14, Jesus had told them that the Holy Spirit would indwell them forever, never to leave them. Here, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will come to help them bear witness of Jesus, which is why the world will know that his disciples are his, even though he is not here. As he continues on, we're, we learn about where, in verse 26, where the Holy Spirit comes from. He's sent from the Son and is from the Father. And this is another amazing display of that doctrine of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And as a spirit of truth, he will testify of Jesus. He will help his disciples to bear witness about who Jesus is. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us, makes us more like Christ, so that we look different. And our difference, as verse 27 says, we will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning, as he says to his disciples. The disciples have seen, they've heard Jesus, they've hung out with Jesus for three years, they've seen every aspect of him, sleeping, eating, boating. And the outcome of all of that, all of that experience of experiencing Jesus is that you will go out and testify of him, even if the world hates and persecutes them for it. The outcome in my life of knowing more about who Jesus is is that I want to go and tell people more about who Jesus is. Disciples of Jesus testify of the character of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, and the message of Jesus. In Matthew 28, 18 to 20, we see, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus commands his disciples to go, to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The disciples of Jesus can't shrink from anything he taught, and neither can those taught by the apostles back away from anything that Jesus taught them. I like how the NIV says it, and you also must testify. As we continue on in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 16, uh, Jesus continues to talk about persecution, but the focus changes from the cause because his disciples have a different origin and belonging to the response of the disciples when they are persecuted. In verse 1, he says, Jesus says to them, I'm telling you these things to keep you from falling away. What's Jesus' greatest concern? Is that his disciples will face persecution? No. His, he's preparing them for that. The greatest danger of the disciples will confront from the opposition, that they will get from the opposition of this world is not death, but apostasy. Jesus gives us this reason for these things. 
He tells us these things so that they won't go astray. And John develops this even more in 1 John 2, verse 19, uh, which explains why some people fall away, but those who are in Christ, they are held secure. As John says in 1 John 2, verse 19, it says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So let us remember what Jesus said, has already said in John 10. I give them eternal life that they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Which is why we can sing a hymn that says like this and this hymn almost makes me cry every single time I hear it. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the temper would prevail, he can hold me fast. So if we are in Christ, you won't fall away. The evidence of being in Christ is the perseverance of the saints. I think about uh, one of our elders said today, that a lot of what is going on in our world is teaching us something about endurance, to keep going. But if we're in Christ, we won't fall away because we are in his hand. And I've used this analogy before, but I think it's great because I learned it from my senior pastor when I was a youth pastor. You know, if I put a toonie into my hand and I say to my kids, take that toonie out, if you can open my hand and take that out, that's yours. Although it would probably have to be more like 20 bucks now because of inflation. (laughs) And I say, it's yours if you can get it out. They're not going to be able to get it out of my hand. I'm bigger than they are. I'm bigger and I'm stronger. I'm not even bragging about it. I am. This is the facts. They're children. They'll try. Now, if God, the creator of the world by whom all things were created, says that you are in his hand and no one can snatch him out. What do you think is going to happen if someone tries? It's not going to happen. When fear, when I fear my faith will fail, you've been there, Christ will hold me fast. And what does it mean to fall away in this context, what Jesus is talking about here? not testifying. Maybe to avoid the world's hatred. This would mean that there is a failure to bear fruit that we see in John 15, 16. When Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So how do we know whether we're chosen? How do we know if God has chosen us? Well, if we reject the world's false explanation of what this world is. Are you convinced that God made the world? We can know by if we have rejected the world's wicked ways. Are you convinced that God has shown what is right? You can know if you believe that Jesus is the words are true. 
These are, the re- these are the reasons to think that Jesus has chosen us out of this world, that you are abiding in Christ because your desires are lining up more with the one who saved you. The more fully we give ourselves to a life abiding in Jesus, the richer our fellowship will be with all with who God is. The intimacy with God will propel us into mission of God. You ever notice that the closer you are with God, the more you want to talk about him? The more the gospel takes hold of you and me and our church here at Knollwood, the more we will be uh, outward facing in mission and not inward facing in fear. Grace comes to us in order that it might flow through us. Thus, according to Jesus, we should not be surprised at growing opposition, even persecution from this world. Why does the gospel of grace bring such hatred? Because it is disruptive before it is redemptive. The gospel sabotages all forms of self-salvation. I can't do this on my own. Jesus, I need you. I can't hustle hard enough to get into heaven. Our need is so great that it took the death of the Son of God to save people like you and me. The good news is that Jesus went willingly and gladly to the cross for those who are in Christ. As the disciples testify more and more of who Jesus is, This is the outcome. As verse 2 says, even the synagogues will reject him. Whether it was at this time in the first century or now, Christians have come to the realization that dangerous oppression doesn't come from people who are nominal, but religious zealots from other faiths and ideologies. Has it not become more evident to you as you look around in our world, in our country, That even in this country, we don't face persecution from necessarily religious zealots, but we do face them from religious ideologies. You know, one of the jobs of a pastor is to prepare the sheep, the flock, the congregation for persecution. That's one of our jobs. So I actually pray that the members of Knollwood for myself and for you. That as a church, we would be prepared for persecution, remembering to love and not curse our persecutors. Which I think is a good ideology these days. I find that everyone seems to be saying, hey, we're being persecuted, and they're acting like jerks in response to it, not love. Verse 3, he says, and they will do these things. Why? Because they don't know the Father. To know Jesus truly as the revelation of God is to know God. And to know that uh, this is to have eternal life. And to not know God is to grow hatred towards those who do. Because Jesus wants his disciples to remember his teaching. When the hour, when that time comes. You know what I find interesting about that word, the hour? is that it's closely tied to Jesus using that word numerous times, that his hour has come, his hour has come. Meaning that the persecution is closely tied to his resurrection. 
They will remember what Jesus said. His disciples will remember what Jesus said and their faith will be strengthened because they will be assured that what is happening to them is not outside either his knowledge or his control. Our world is changing so fast. And I know I'm young and I'm saying that. But even as a younger person, my mind is like blown away by how fast our country has changed. And all I can do is fall on my knees to and rest in the sovereignty of God in that. I make, my, I make it known. But if God is in control of all things, my response to persecution is to rest, knowing that in my persecution I actually grow in Christ-likeness. When you look at the church, either in modern times or even in the Bible, in Acts, in Acts we see that persecution, the church was being persecuted to a whole new level. The outcome of that was not a shrinking church, but a growing church. How many people thought that the church in Russia was destroyed? But when the walls came down, we found out that it wasn't. How many of us thought that in Iran the church was going to be snuffed out? But there's actually, the church is stronger in Iran now than it ever was before the rebellion in the 80s. How about China? The fastest growing group of Christians is in China. I'm old enough to know that I remember we're praying for the church in China. God, please don't snuff it out. Persecution doesn't stop the church. It makes it better. It makes us, refines us. Remember that song, Refiner's Fire? We always, <laughs> it's funny, right? We're always singing this song, Refiner's Fire. And I'm like, yay, refi-. we're all like worshipful. Have we ever sat there and thought about this? Fire hurts. But God is using it to refine his people so that we can shine brighter for him, so that we can be a more effective testimony for him in this world. So what do we do with this? If we are like Jesus in this world, the world will treat us as Jesus was treated. But if we are like Jesus in this world, he has given us the Holy Spirit as our helper. He has spoken words so that we won't fall away and will be with us forever. So let us also pray for our brothers and sisters throughout the world who are facing this very persecution that we just talked about. Let us be a reminder, let this also be a reminder that Jesus said that the world would hate us without cause. If the world is going to hate us, it should not be because of our arrogance or sin on our part but because we're proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. If we are like Jesus in this world, the world will treat us as Jesus was treated. But if we are like Jesus in this world, he has given us the Holy Spirit as our helper. He has spoken words so that we won't fall away and will be with us forever. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this this time that we have to just gather and to worship you. I pray that we have a growing understanding more and more of the treasure we have in you. That whatever we may face in this life does not surpass the greater joy of what we will receive in eternity, being with you forever. 
We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit that enables us to grow more and more like Christ, like you, that helps us to testify of who you are in this world and gives us the strength to withstand anything that we may receive because we just want to shine brightly for you. Help us to be disciples who make disciples.